designers and curious minds. Ever wondered about the stories hiding within your building's walls? I'm Carrie Seaburn, structural engineer and host of Unstruct, the podcast that decodes and simplifies major concepts of structural design. Behind the math and physics, structural engineering simply predicts building behavior. Join me as we simplify the complex, making structural design accessible to everyone. Nowadays, instead of measuring it via cost, we're saying, well, what about carbon, you know? We've got two levers now that we can, if if an architect has an inefficient design, we can hit them with two levers if you like. (laughs) The official casualty figure is 55,000. Everybody I talked to told me that the actual figure is at least three times as much. And I believe that. I mean, seeing what I saw, Turkish codes are good and, and they have been improving, but compliance was completely lacking. Fluent in steel, concrete, masonry, and timber design, I'll bring you leading engineers to dissect the tails behind their building structure. Whether you're an architect, contractor, engineer, or just love a good story, this podcast is for you. Yeah, beam penetrations. That's a fun topic on this project. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Unstruct. From within your walls, hear the story behind how your building stands today. Hello, hello. Welcome to Tangible Remnants. I'm Nikita Reed, and this is my show where I explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. I'm excited that you're here, so let's get into it. Episode 7. Welcome back to another episode of Tangible Remnants. I'm excited that this week we're actually going to travel outside of the U.S. to the beautiful island of St. Lucia, where I talk with Jermaine Joseph from the St. Lucia National Trust. I met Jermaine at a Association for Preservation Technology Conference, uh, APT, last year, and I was so thrilled to meet another woman of color in the preservation space, particularly someone who's working at a national trust in a different country. Talking with Jermaine at the APT conference is what inspired me to really start taking the steps to make this podcast become real. And so for for that, I am forever grateful for her encouragement and support in doing that. So our conversation is wide ranging and we cover a number of different things, including the preservation of cultural heritage in the Caribbean, as well as the impacts of tourism on cultural heritage, colonization, slavery, colorism, climate change. We cover a number of things as the conversation was just flowing. You'll hear my ignorance about St. Lucia come out a couple different times, and Jermaine is uh, gracious enough to teach me more about the culture. And a couple of the things that came up for me in this one was just a reminder that when taking a global view that not every black person in the world is African-American, there are different narratives, histories, and stories that exist for black people of color around the world. So just a heads up, this episode contains some explicit language, so if you have any little ones around, you may want to grab some headphones. A little bit about Jermaine. She holds a BSc degree in architecture and has six years of work experience in conservation and preservation of cultural heritage. She specializes in built heritage and is currently managing a register of 250 historic buildings for listing while also developing draft legislation for the preservation and conservation of the historic buildings. 
She was recently certified in Museum Conservation Skills and Values Heritage Management at the University of the West Indies in conjunction with the OAS. And she's also taken on a curatorial role at Walcott House Museum, which is the birth museum of the Walcott twins, Sir Derek and Roderick Walcott. Her current research interests include cultural heritage management, museum heritage management, heritage interpretation, anthropology, archaeology, and the restoration of built heritage. She was also awarded a 2019 fellowship with the Museums Association of the Caribbean for her work at Walcott House. And since her term with the St. Lucia National Trust, she's been able to marry her passion for architecture with her fervor for cultural heritage and preservation. She is an absolute joy, and I'm so excited to be able to share this conversation with you. There are a couple different links in the show notes to a couple of the projects and sites that we talk about on the podcast, so be sure to check those out. And remember, you can like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow the podcast on Facebook and Instagram using the handle Tangible Remnants. This week's episode is sponsored by Smart Chief Architects. Smart Chief Architects is a course that I created to help architects better manage their small practices. And you can find out more information at www.smartsheetforarchitects.com. And if you enter in offer code TR podcast, as in tangible remnants podcast, then you can get 20% off any purchase on any of the courses. And without further ado, let's get into the show. So one of the reasons why I wanted to chat with you, aside from me being amazing, was the fact that you're in St. Lucia doing historic preservation and dealing with a lot of the issues of climate change and telling different narratives of different histories. So I'm just so excited to hear more from you about that. My first question then is, what are some of the preservation issues that you're finding in St. Lucia? Thank you, Nikita. Yes, lovely St. Lucia, the Caribbean island, the Helen of the West. We have a lot of issues. I think I, I don't even know where to start, whether we start at the top or the bottom. I mean, the first one is that our policies really do not encourage the preservation of our historic asset, be built or tangible or intangible, there isn't a lot to support that. And we are seeing the, the repercussions of this because we're losing a lot of our cultural heritage really quickly. Some of the challenges that we face involve just basic awareness of the importance of our heritage, what it means, and embracing it. And when I say embracing it, I mean the narrative of you know, slavery was a major issue, well, obviously, for everyone. And it's not it's not readily embraced here. So all of our monuments and all of our sites do have the, the backdrop of slavery. So it's it's not it's not very pleasant to embrace that. So we're finding that everything that's cultural heritage is seen as derogatory or negative. And that's number one when it comes to our preservation of our historic structures, our cultural heritage. Mm -hmm. And so then are the monuments and things more so celebrating, I guess, the, the slavers or the captors as opposed to any of the indigenous people from the island? Absolutely. It's, you know, when it's, interpreted it, it just negates the complexity of our history and for me that is an issue and you know we're slowly waking up to that fact that it, everything represents the colonizers 
perspective, you know, the forts are built and there are narratives like there was skilled labor building building the, the forts and there are no names listed. Um, we have no idea who this skilled labor was. I work at Pigeon Island National Landmark and we have, it was a military site, so there are numerous buildings on site, but they're all interpreted as Mr. Walter Rodney, who was responsible for the Battle of the Saints. And there's no back history of the Amerindians who lived here, the Taino who were here. There's, you know, all of that, that complexity has just been erased. So it's it's told literally from one side. And of course, the trust is, is starting to, to try and bring that narrative in. But also it has to seep into our communities and into, you know, the, the residents, people who, and, and we need buy-in. But we can only start to tell the stories. We say Lucians, we see our historic site as a recreational area, not necessarily a place for communing with our past or understanding our history. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, I know in the States we have, uh, I guess we have a mix of them. Some of, most of the sites are more commemorative, but there are a number of like national parks where it's the focus is more so on recreation as opposed to the history of what happened in that space. In terms of, I guess, the recreation, so is it kind of like weddings and family gatherings and that kind of recreation? Or is yes. it, um, okay. Beach picnics, events, the Sinusha Jazz, Jazz Festival is held here as well. And it's very scenic and you would never, and that also lends itself to negating our complex history. You know, we never see it as a place of uh, education and taking taking apart the past. And, and th- I think sites like that should really sort of jog our memories and, and help us remember. As a result of being a touristic site now, St. Lucia has had to, there's a conflict now in the use. That is where our heritage comes in. And that is where the St. Lucia National Trust and other heritage organizations have been able to come in because our sites are being used, it's touristic values, and then we're ignoring, almost disrespecting the heritage, cultural heritage sites. So there's a conflict that has started because of that, and it's allowing the trust and other organizations to say, hey, wait a second, we need to address this. Right. Yeah, because I can see that being a problem where if it's people who are visitors to the island wanting Mm -hmm. to party on a site that really should be hallowed ground, and Mm -hmm. then the conflict of, well they're paying us money to do this and the mm-hmm. money and the revenue, wherever that goes. So yeah, that can, that can end up getting very complex very quickly. Yes. Yep. I know when we were previously talking, you had mentioned that St. Lucia has been colonized by the French and the British multiple different times. And so there are overlapping narratives and I guess conflicting yeah. narratives of how you tell that story. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Absolutely. So we were, we solutions have this narrative that we were seven times British and seven times French. And that's where our history started. And this is why I'm saying the narrative is so, it's so constricted that it's ignored the Taino and the Amerindians who were there before. And in this narrative now being, we have this confluence of, of the French and the British and our architecture is a mix of the French and the British. And I was speaking to someone the other day and saying it's such a, a, a synchronicity in it. It's so subtle that you have to actually look, you actually can't see the divide because it's it's married so well. Mm-hmm. And that in itself has given St. Lucia a unique um, architectural style, which yet, which doesn't really have a name right now because it's come from the French and the British. You can't say it's British colonial and you can't say it's French colonial. So 
we're still defining that language, but we have that as a, a unique part of our cultural heritage. So then the, the architecture that, that is down there, are you seeing the effects of climate change or kind of rising sea level or anything like that on any of the historic resources and historic architecture that is trying to be preserved? And how is that being handled? Well, we're casting a blind eye and Nikita, I hate to say, everything indicates that some of our sites will be under sea level, you know, in the next, I don't know, 20, how many years, but mm-hmm. all, all the indications are there. All the research is showing that and nobody's, we're not at the moment considering how we're going to address these issues right now. It's, it's not on the table. The discussions are not happening, but it doesn't ignore the fact that the research is there showing that, you know, most of our sites will be underwater. Is it is that conversation happening anywhere on the island? Like maybe just not in Heritage or is it kind of still being ignored? Yeah, it's happening on the island. You know, our people are not reticent of it. It's not resonating. It's it's still something that's in the past. Um, even even if the hurricane seasons, I mean we have five hurricanes right right now out there in the Atlantic, you know, our climate has definitely intensified. And we've recently had, you know, some forts, some historic forts collapse. I mean, the evidence is there, but nobody's paying attention. Oh my goodness, that's uh, petrifying, but then also somewhat comforting to realize that there are other people ignoring it in other parts of the world, like it's happening in America here as well. So I don't know, it's kind of like misery loves company, I guess. <laughs> it's just, a, oh yeah, man. It's so sad. I mean, you know, there are ways of mitigating and addressing you know, people considering moving the things, but we're just not even having the conversation. Wow. Like, so, I wonder, yeah. like, what do you think it's going to take for that conversation to come more to the mainstream? I think awareness. I think we need to start educating people and start giving people more um, real-life stories and start showing the data in a more real way that, that relates to them, that helps them relate. I don't know if it's visually or if it's, Something like that, you know, because right now it's just on paper. Okay. Sorry, this is just fascinating to me because it's, in my mind, climate change is so, so real, so imminent, so concerning. And so just kind of knowing that St. Lucia is an island, I think it'd be more of a concern. (laughs) Square miles, not much, not very big. Wait, how big? 238 square miles. Yeah. Going to be affected. Right. Oh, my goodness. So then what got you into the heritage space in St. Lucia? Right. I listened to your your first podcast, Nikita, and I was just so inspired because, you know, I feel like heritage found me. I, I, I studied in the UK, learned architecture and design and came back to St. Lucia and realized quickly that our cultural heritage, that meant a lot to me. And, you know, when you leave your country and you go abroad and you see other people showing reverence and appreciating it really does put a new perspective and of course being a foreigner in another country you, you do appreciate your culture so I came back and started this blog and I should have made that correlation my blog was called colonial impressions because I really wanted to understand the physical as well as the intangible the physical aspect of our heritage our cultural heritage our built heritage 
and just finding out about these buildings, which had uh, this mix of Gothic architecture and, and British architecture and, you know, fretwork that's designed to keep on bats. You know, there were, there were just all these amazing tidbits in terms of the construction. And so whilst I started digging, I realized this is definitely somewhere to, I feel comfortable. And um, since then, I've just been following your footsteps, really. <laughs> <laughs> and so I remember how uh, excited I was to meet you at the APT conference last year because there's not that many Black women in preservation, particularly at APT, because APT were kind of the nerds that are like, oh, how do you fix the brick and the mortar? And you <laughs> more in the technical piece of it. <laughs> and I, I embrace that. It's fine. <laughs> So I was so excited to meet you and I just really enjoyed getting to know you more and more of the work that you're doing. But then I'm wondering, when did you start working at the Trust? Six years ago. Okay. They needed a program officer for built heritage because the policies were not in place and they needed to start a listing of buildings. We Up until 2014, we hadn't had a, an official register. So I was taken on board to do that. Okay. So since then, we've compiled a register of historic buildings. And as I said in the beginning, Akita, the, the support policy-wise is not there. I mean, it has been submitted to the, the Development Control Authority, but we're still having some issues in having the list adopted formally. And in the meantime, we have like 1% of our built heritage that's still experiencing climate change, experiencing degradation. You know, I know I'm preaching to the choir, but there's so many amazing techniques that these buildings represent, the material that they used. Most of it is local wood and the process. It's just, it's immaculate thinking about how these buildings have been put together. Wow. And so then... Are you finding that most of the sites that you're listing on the register are still privately owned or are they owned by like the government or different companies or what's the ownership structure like? A lot of them are privately owned and not just that, they're not being taken care of. So we're losing quite a few. We've had some successes in that Sir Derek Walcott's house, which is uh, the Booth Museum of Sir Derek and Roderick Walcott. It, the government worked with us on that to preserve it. And I'd love to see that model sort of for the, the, all the rest of the buildings. But yeah, that, there's always that, that friction between the privately owned buildings. And mm -hmm. there's a lot, I'd say, like 70% of the buildings are, okay. are owned by. Gotcha. So 70, like about 70% of the buildings are privately owned. I wanted to circle back real quick, just because I'm curious. So as we were, we were chatting earlier about the kind of the narratives and the difficult history around slavery on the island and all of kind of all the related issues to that mm -hmm. did. And this is going to show my ignorance of St. Lucia a little bit. So apologies. So were there like uh, big plantation houses with slave oh, quarters? Yes. And, oh, uh, yes. Mm -hmm. There were plantation houses. There were aqueducts. There were, I mean, just two weeks ago we found, well, we discovered, I guess, because it's been there, a slave, slave quarters. And like you say, you know what, I... I just, I, I get emotional when I think about it because you're, we're uncovering all of this and there's the sordid history and then mm -hmm. there's the careful design in, in which these things were built. So there is a, a sort mm -hmm. of yin and yang thing going on where like, I'm really excited to, to, to see this detail, this how this window was done, but I know it was part of a mechanism to incarcerate my ancestors. Yes. So there's, yeah. So there's that all of that 
dichotomy and there's right now there's a plantation house there's a, a gentleman who at the moment he's preserving wooden heritage so he will find a historic building and if it's at a, in, a threat of demolition he would purchase it and then reconstruct it on a site I mean, I'm not sure about that, but at least it's being preserved. He reconstructed on a site, and then he offers it's part of his tourism product. Mm-hmm. And and still, the narrative of slavery is not in that conversation. It's like, oh, it's a pretty building. It's a right, no, <laughs> right. We have that same issue in the states where it's the everyone wants to glorify the big, beautiful plantation house, but then they don't mm-hmm. want to talk about the small slave quarters behind it and they don't want to acknowledge the fact that the big house wouldn't exist without the little house and there's Mm -hmm. kind of this whole false Mm -hmm. narrative around the southern gentry and how they were such gentlemen and they were you know these upstanding citizens but the the fact that they were kidnappers and rapists and murderers and all of that is brushed aside (laughs) so it and oh oh my gosh and I totally understand your the conflicting Mm -hmm. interest when you're discovering or re uncovering rather the yeah. different historic heritage because as as the designer the architect the preservation specialist you're excited about this has been here for over 100 years or however long and it's like a direct connection to the past but yeah. then it's also the oh what happened here and knowing that this was a place where our ancestors or people who look like us were not treated well and yeah. oh, that that issue absolutely absolutely i mean you know some of the we put a site called mont fortune and there are probably like six or seven um, military buildings there and they were all ballast from the ships that carried our ancestors so they would mm-hmm. put the bricks in the bottom of the boat without with our enslaved people and then once they offloaded everyone and the bricks they would put tea in the bottom and whatever supplies that they got from here and these buildings were built from the, the bricks that came down as ballast so it's oh wow it's very you know it's chilling to think mm-hmm. about it you know that it is what it is and I just I believe in telling the story fully as opposed to just having it one blindsided and one-sided yeah exactly because I feel like it's oh my gosh, sorry, so many thoughts right now. Because <laughs> the by not telling the full story, then we create so many false narratives, and there's mm-hmm. so many people who think of history as one-sided, or that only one group of people contributed, or that you know others did not. And typically, it tends to be white people were this great civilization that did all these fantastic things, and everyone who's not mm-hmm. white mm-hmm. owes white people a debt of gratitude because white people saved all these savages and all the other bullshit that is just not true. But like the way that the history is written is of course written by the victors. And so that's the story and the narrative that's been passed around. But it's interesting to me that it, that's happening in St. Lucia. And maybe it's also, again, me showing my ignorance of the Island. So thank you for bearing with me as we're working through this. <laughs> but I guess I always assume St. Lucia to be a predominantly black Island. And so it's interesting to me, or actually let me stop there. Is that even uh, true yes. is St. Louis predominantly black? Um, no, it's not. Okay. Uh, we've got a kind of a, a system, I would call it. I think we had spoken about that briefly. Where black, the black, the word black it doesn't 
we have a different, what I would call a different form of racism here. It, it is racism, but mm-hmm. our society puts it under the, into the bracket of colorism or shadism. So there's a, a color, a, a caste system, a color system where, you know, the, the lighter you are, the higher up or the more clout you have in this com- in this community in this on this island so and this happened because owners the plantation owners started mixing with mm-hmm. the locals and also martinique started mixing with french with the french started mixing the british it was so it's this melting pot so there's a gradation of color throughout our society which dictates who gets what and then it, it also is underpinned by the, your name so the family name also sets up this whole system, which is systematic racism in my in my mind, but it was a different from right. a different angle. Yeah. Oh, it's fascinating. <laughs> Particularly so in America, the the general rule of thumb is if if you, if you have one drop of black in you, you're considered black. Mm-hmm. If you wow. look like you're not pure white, then you're considered black. You're treated differently. I, I mean, you know, even Obama he was mixed, but he looked yeah. black, so he was treated as a black man. So it's a, uh, but I think that's fascinating that it's, oh man. So it's so yeah. being treated like um, somebody of higher in a higher class than you know somebody who's darker skinned and and you know it's you get that. I, I have friends who say they got into the party because they were lighter skinned than that person or perpetuates, and then of course there's the <clears throat> excuse me at the other side of this, which is this whole system that's being set up now where tourism is our major income and we're back to the same sort of plantocracy where we're serving white people and tourists as better than us. So we, we get the menial jobs, we get the menial positions, the cleaner that, you know, this, the cleaners, the, I'm not saying that they're, we, we're arguing that why can't we be part of the higher echelons of these organizations? Mm-hmm. You know, why can't yeah. we? people be educated and have a place why are we right. why are we constantly creating these jobs that don't empower our people yeah that's that's wild to me like it's also just the a reminder of how effective colonialism was at yeah. positioning yeah. the narrative that white was the highest yeah. level yes and wow. we're, we're always in servitude yeah oh, that blows my mind and one of those it's, it's one of those things where it's like I know, but it's also like a oh damn. It's it's the the reminder of it. I'm also recognizing that I'm thinking of this with a very American context. And so mm-hmm. when I'm thinking St. Lucia is a very black country, it's a or a black island, it's a well yeah, because the one drop rule. So basically everyone in my mind in St. Lucia's or majority is probably black, but you're like, Well, there's levels to this and that's so true. And so it's just reframing it. That's fascinating. So then um, this is just me being nosy. What yeah. are the different levels of black referred to, I guess? Like in the in the US, it's like oh people are black or like African-American typically. So I guess what are other different names yeah. for different levels oh in St. Lucia? So it's so derogatory, um, Nikita, so derogatory. So we have what we call the Shabins, which is a okay. French word, which means that you're like, like really pale skin and you got what they call nice eyes and good hair. So that's thought after. So Mm -hmm. in St. Lucia, they call you a shabin. And then there is, well, the brown skin is is more of a Jamaican term that we've adopted. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's a a really derogatory term, term, which shouldn't be that way because they call you a negmawa. Now, this is a a mixture of our 
our French background. So a Negma or Negmas were people who would give the French and the British help. Okay. Oh. So they've translated that into something um, negative. And of course, having the word neg in there from Negro is right. confusion of, okay, so you, you're really the darkest skin of, and black. So yeah, those are the various terms that, that are used to describe. But back then, I should say in the 1960s, when all of this stuff was going on, I mean, they still use the word shabby and not so much neg now, but yeah, just to give you a, a small inclination of the, the systematic, you know. And in America, the I guess the Shabian would be a lighter skinned black person or sometimes called a red bone. Okay. And actually, my dad was a red bone and he was very light skinned. And it was anyways, that's a story for another day. But it's um, <laughs> also considered passing for white because that was something yeah. else that lighter skinned people would do. Because if they were able to, then, of course, they had different access to different levels of society. Yeah, yeah. It's so complex. It's, and it, it, all really, it does really tie into, you know, our heritage and how we perceive things and, mm-hmm. you know, how we, yeah, for, for us in St. Lucia, anything that was associated with the Negma or we, we weren't even allowed to speak Patois in the 1960s. And I think you know, that really did a number on us psychologically in terms of embracing our culture and heritage. You know, you, you, that it, it, had, it was our, our, our mother tongue. It was how we expressed ourselves. I mean, even when we translate Patois in Creole into English, it's, it's, it doesn't feel right. You know, there's a rhythm, there's, a, there's, there's some part of us that's in that culture. So in that, in that, in those, in, in that language that we, it was broken out of us. So... With, we were told to speak the Queen's English and, you know, all of that just kind of, in my mind, has done a number on us accepting, you know, the better parts of our cu- cultural heritage for, mm-hmm. for want of a better word. <laughs> and so then you're saying like in the 60s that that was the, the charge to just speak the Queen's English as opposed to Patois? Yes. Yes, there was. That was the time of Windrush. That was the time um, Sir Derek and Roger Walker was speaking and writing about our folklores because there, there was so much that we had inherited from, from our African ancestors that we brought with us as part of the transition, this transatlantic slave trade. So the, the Taino were here and then the Africans came in and the, the Africans and colonial masters came in and the mixing started happening but there's so much of our culture that is african based so derek walker and roderick walker were leading the charge in those days to infer that there should be some importance to our language to what we eat to how we dance because you know it's important and it was relevant so i we spoke about how sir derek was talking about in those days you could not compare a mango to a an apple because mangoes breadfruit, all of these things were slave food, right? So the, him and Roderick started idealizing the breadfruit, the mango. They started painting because it was just all the scenes that we had were, you know, of British countryside, British landscape. So they said, you know what, I need to paint pictures of the sea and fishermen and waterfalls that we have, you know, and they started idealizing our cultural heritage. And, and that wasn't an important step, I think, in the 1960s. St. Lucia but right. it has moved on since then unfortunately we're still looking for the next 
walk it in the <laughs> next, you know, the next Roderick and Derek. There's so much to unpack there because it's always the the idolizing the yeah. the other, you know, or idolizing the British or looking to. And I don't know. I mean, I'm kind of impressed in one of those like. How in the world did that tiny little island of England conquer so much of the world and all that? But anyways, yeah. but just like the idea that looking to something other than what was on St. Lucia mm-hmm. was appropriate or important. But then I, I'm glad that they started to be like, no, we have beauty here. Yeah. We have amazing cultures and traditions here that need to be celebrated. And we don't have to be like the British. There's no reason that we have to ignore what's here. Oh, my gosh. I mean, you know. They, they spoke of birds, they, they went full on like with nature, mm-hmm. you know, talking about, there was a something called a Malfini, which is a, 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 a generic bird to St. Lucia, and they created a whole play around it. You know, it wasn't about the nightingale or the blackbird. It, you know, they, this was in the 1960s. They were actually even writing in, in Creole and putting that in their plays. So it was a full on listen, this is important mm-hmm. and we're highlighting this. And I, yeah, I, I respect that. And I, I really wish we were closer to that in this day and age. Right. How have you seen the tourism industry impact uh, the island or any of the cultural heritage stuff that you're working on? Or, or are there specific ways that the tourism industry is impacting them? Good Lord. You say you just open the can of worms there, girl. <laughs> <laughs> I yes, it's phenomenal. There are three developments happening right now on some heritage sites, and I could name one specifically, which is up in, which is in the north. Which is I don't know how many golf course num- holes it is or whatever, but it's being constructed on a pre-Columbian site oh. right now. So th- this is the level of intrusion that we're at, where policies are not there to uphold it. The Development Control Authority doesn't have anything in place that, that says, listen, you can't do this. It's private land. All of the conflict is there, Nakita, all of everything. It's So tourism is our main product. They want to build these condominiums and hotels on our beaches. Our locals get locked out landlocked they have no access to the beaches they have no access to the hotels the hotels are being built on our sacred ground that's all i can see oh my goodness that's heartbreaking <laughs> yes it is it is and most of the time it feels like we're, we're losing the battle but what can we see what can we do just keep up the good fight <laughs> that it's one of those things where like it's such the, the idea of developers coming in, building on beaches, landlocking out locals, I feel like that's happening in so many different places around the world. Mm-hmm. And it's infuriating because it's almost just like the lack of compassion that yeah. is being shown to the people who live in the place and yes. will ultimately work in the buildings and be there. And it's it's infuriating. And I, I don't obviously have any answers for it, but it's the yeah. developers with compassion, I think is something that would be needed um, and is needed around the world because it can't always just be about making the most money. Exactly. Like you said, what about the balance? Let's create a balance. Right. And then do 2,000 acres of land need to be developed all at once? Can you incorporate right. what's already existing? I understand in, in some of these um, developments, they want to throw out people who have been there for 20, 30 years building their, their income and building their business from little things. And you know, like you said, compassion and vision. Let's see how we can work together, how we can, right. you know, let's not build on on the site before conducting an archaeological dig. There are simple, really simple procedures that could take right. the top off and, and just stop the pressure. Just Let's just right. follow the 
guidelines. There are international guidelines that say give the residents, I don't know, two weeks a month so that they can sort of dig dig the site and get their, their archaeological stuff and mm-hmm. we would relocate them or decide right. what to do with them. Oh, well, I guess we'll start wrapping up, but thank you for so much for jumping on the podcast and sharing more about St. Lucia and teaching me more. I've learned so much already just from just from our conversation. Thank um, you for inviting me. Of course. I'm excited that, as I mentioned, there's not that many women of color in the preservation mm-hmm. field and recognizing that the U.S. is very young as a country. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I'm always excited to talk to others outside of the States to get other preservation perspectives. I remember I was when I was studying abroad for a little bit, I came across someone from England who was basically like, we have castles older than your country. You know, you, you, guys, treat, you guys treat your historic heritage too precious. I was like, oh, all right. Well, fair, I guess. Oh, oh my God. Wow. Well, that concludes another episode. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, historic preservation is a present conversation with our past about our future. We don't inherit the earth from our parents, but we borrow it from our children. So let's make sure we're telling the inclusive history. Musical selections that you heard throughout the episode are from Sarah Gilberg's album, Other People's Secrets, which is available on Amazon and just about everywhere music is sold. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that, (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it guys. Oh my One that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.